everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing all right. I've been thinking a lot lately about the show Herman's Head. You know, like you do. For those unfamiliar, Herman's Head was a sitcom that was on in the early 90s that was about a guy named Herman, and then about half the show took place in his head. Herman's Head, as it were. And inside his head were anthropomorphic representations of the various things that were going on in his mind. Like there was a character that represented love, and there was one who represented lust, and there was one who represented intellect. And I've been thinking that if that show took place in my head, I think a lot of people would be surprised at the prominent role played by a character named Schemes to Turn a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court Situation to My Financial or Social Benefit. Because I'm pretty sure I have spent more time thinking about that than any job that I have ever held. And the frustrating part is that when, and mark my words, this is a when, not if situation, I do become unstuck in time, I'm still going to be really bad at it, because I don't have any definitive conclusions about that. I mean, if it's recent times, then I could do okay in terms of sports betting and knowing which collectibles would appreciate in value. But anything over 100 years ago is just going to be me annoying people because I keep telling them to wash their hands and telling them to gather around the campfire so that I can tell them about half-remembered episodes of Herman's Head, which I'm pretty sure isn't going to convince anybody I'm a wizard. Anyway, I got no transition from this, so without any further ado, let's ado this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted in the form of a sonnet by Devin Tuhey. My mistress's eyes are nothing like brown bears. Her mouth and nose are much unlike a snout. And when she scratches, no strong matter tears. For she lacks claws to put her foes to rout. In honey pots her head hath never stuck. And though she's chased, she's never chased by bees in shapes of arrows, guns, or fire trucks. And picnic baskets do not her please. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know. No ursine growls I'll hear escape her throat. And she'll not sleep to scape the frigid snow, But braves winter in artifice's coat. And yet I love her as I'd an ursus, More than any who grace this synopsis. Thanks, Devin. Defenders, number 96, June 1981. The Rock and Roll Conspiracy. Written by J.M. DeMattis, Drotted by Don Perlin, Inked by Joe Sinnott and Sal Trapini, lettered by Diana Albers, colored by George Russos, and edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup Doctor Strange, Valkyrie, Hellcat, Nighthawk, Son of Satan, The Gargoyle, Wong, 
and Ghost Rider. Previously in the Defenders. Doctor Strange had caught wind of a cosmic class kerfuffle, so he called up his perfidiously parented pal Damon Hellstrom, aka the Son of Satan, to lend the Defenders a hand. That suited Damon just fine because there was something he had wanted to tell the gang about anyway. The heroes embarked on their reality-restoring endeavor and emerged triumphant. Hooray! Damon was about to tell the Defenders his big news, but got distracted when billionaire to well bird enthusiast Kyle Richmond, aka Nighthawk, was suddenly paralyzed by a mysterious mystical attack, which nearly killed the affluent avian aficionado. Oh no! Kyle soon discovered that the magic attack had undone a spell which had saved his life way back in his first team-up with the Defenders. But fortunately, it only affected him during daylight hours and at night the semi-stricken superhero was still as strong as two strong men. So, that was nice. At this point, the gang got word that their old pal Namor had been seduced by a shape-shifting psychic celestial sea slug who had once run a clown-themed self-help cult, and they were trying to conquer the surface world together. So Steve teleported most of them to England so that they could try to slap some sense into the cerebrally subjugated subaquatic sovereign. Our protagonist prevailed and the sea slug was hauled off to space jail. Hooray. But when they returned home, they found that Hellcat, aka Patsy Walker, who had stayed behind to mourn the death of her estranged mother Dorothy, had been kidnapped. Oh no! The Hulk decided this was as good a time as any to take another of his signature sabbaticals to work on his sulking and jumping skills. But Steve, Val, and Damon journeyed to Patsy's hometown of Montclair, New Jersey to investigate the disappearance. They found the house which Hellcat had just inherited from her mother was a smoking pile of ash and rubble. In the midst of the wreckage, they found a badly injured Dolly Donahue, the walker's long-suffering housekeeper. Before passing out from her injuries, Dolly informed our heroes that Patsy had been abducted by a hideous living gargoyle who was in league with demonic forces. It was that being who had destroyed the house and nearly killed her. As they dropped Dolly off at the hospital, Damon finally filled the other defenders in on the thing he had wanted to tell them before they kept getting distracted by having to save the world. Turns out, during a recent exorcism he had performed, Son of Satan learned about the existence of a group of demons called the Six-Fingered Hand. The Hand was a sextet of minor demons who learned that if they all moved in together as fiendish finger puppets on a giant devil hand, they would not only save on rent, but also grow incredibly powerful. Also, they hated the Defenders for some reason. Good to know. The trio of heroes tracked Patsy's abductor to the seemingly idyllic town of Christianboro, Virginia, where in the town hall, a gargoyle was leading a group of brainwashed citizens in a dark ritual, sacrificing Hellcat's soul to the demon Avarish, a member of the Six-Fingered Hand. The defenders battled the gargoyle and a host of minor demons, but it appeared that they were too late. A possessed Patsy rose from the altar and used an array of new Hellborn powers to slap around her former friends. Eventually, Valkyrie managed to friendship her bedeviled buddy back to normal, but during the course of her possession, Hellcat learned that before her death, her asshole mother had promised her daughter's soul to the six-fingered hand. A devastated Patsy and her teammates tracked the gargoyle to the home of a local octogenarian dabbler in the dark arts named Isaac Christians, where they learned that Isaac and the gargoyle were one and the same. Ike explained to his captors that he had promised Avarish to do his bidding in exchange for economic prosperity for his beloved hometown. 
Avarish had temporarily transformed Isaac into a gargoyle so that he might better carry out his demonic duties. But when Mr. Christians questioned his Beelzebubian boss's methods, Avarish had trapped him in this form on a permanent basis. Now that his infernal economic stimulus plan had failed, a contrite gargoyle begged the defenders not only to forgive him for all the attempted murder and demonic sacrifice, but also to let him join the non-team. The defenders did as Isaac asked and welcomed him into the fold. Then, as if to further demonstrate their questionable judgment of character, they teamed up with literal Dracula to fight a different six-fingered hand demon. After helping their new buddy, literal Dracula, regain his throne as King of the Vampires, the defenders returned to Steve's sanctum to try to figure out where the six-fingered hand would strike next. Gadzooks! After teaming up with a bargain basement small-town Dr. Faustus and literal Dracula, what questionable character's horse will our heroes hitch their demon-thwarting wagon to next? How does Damon Hellstrom greet a one-time ally from whom he seeks a favor? And after sending waves of demons and vampires against our titular non-team, what fiendish force will the six-fingered hand unleash on our harried heroes next? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so a flaming-skulled biker who sold his soul to the devil by blasting him with hellfire, and the most insidious force of all. The power of rock and roll. At an arena in Detroit, Michigan, thousands of screaming fans have gathered to watch Asmodeus Jones and his anonymous purple-robed rock band take the stage. The flamboyant frontman starts belting out his new hit single, Send In The Demons. The crowd watches with rapt attention as in the air above the singer's head, an image starts to form. It looks kind of like if a buxom, demonic version of Reggie Miller had bat ears, one of those soft-grip, ridged bicycle handles on his head, and was wearing an evening gown. It's a unique look, to say the least. As the peculiar image comes into focus, the apparently mesmerized crowd starts chanting the name Fashima. Most of those in attendance are pretty stoked about the show, but backstage, two individuals are decidedly less enthusiastic about Mr. Jones's onstage antics. Jones's long-suffering manager, Felix D. Palmer, watches with a growing sense of anxiety. Next to Palmer, the band's new roadie, a former stuntman named Johnny Blaze, views the image of Fashima with concern. Blaze is no stranger to the occult, seeing as he is the alter ego to Ghost Rider. The flaming skulled, self-styled spirit of vengeance who uses demonic powers and a magically on-fire motorcycle to mete out vigilante justice to those who would do evil. Hooray! Also, Nicolas Cage played him in a couple of movies. Hooray! Blaze reckons that this Fashima demon that hovers over the stage seems like a lot more than just a special effect. The following day in New York City, Valkyrie and a newly wheelchair-bound Nighthawk pay a visit to Kyle's lawyer, Milton Rosenblum. Milt reacts with surprised incredulity when Kyle attempts to explain the nature of his ailment, 
and the impatient industrialist ends up rolling out of the office, leaving Valkyrie to explain to the confused lawyer that Kyle is doing his best not to be a self-absorbed asshole who wells in self-pity, but he's new to it, and apparently there's a bit of a learning curve. Back at the Sanctum Sanctimonious, Steve has been surfing the mystical internet all day, attempting to astrally Google what the six-fingered hand might be up to. After a few hours, Wong interrupts his browsing to bring the supercilious sorcerer some tea. Steve is like, Hmm? Oh yes, thank you, Wong. I suppose I could use some refreshments. Once I got the search bar to stop auto-filling in nasty little flame ghosts, the Orb of Agamotto finally started showing me some images that pertain to the Six-Fingered Hand. But what do they mean? Hovering in the air above the orb are pictures of Ghost Rider's head, an electric guitar, the demon Fashima, and a billboard which reads, Welcome to Detroit. Okay, first of all, I think at least one of those images is relatively self-explanatory, and B... Uh, Steve, have you tried to switch the Orb of Agamotto's search options from images to all? Because it might be worth a shot. As Wong does his best to maintain the conceit that the images the orb is displaying are in some way inscrutable, Patsy, Damon, and Isaac pay a visit to the hospital where Dolly Donahue is still in critical condition after Isaac's attack. In order not to attract any undue attention, the gargoyle has donned the traditional impenetrable disguise of a fedora and trench coat. Hooray! The not entirely inconspicuous octogenarian occultist is like, Oh, this is just awful. In some way, I feel like I'm partly responsible for this woman's condition. Gee, you think? I mean, you blew up a house at her. That's why she's dying. If the gargoyle was looking to be absolved of responsibility, which it sure seemed like what he was fishing for, the statue-semblanced senior citizen is out of luck. A grief-stricken patsy lashes out at the performatively contrite gargoyle, both verbally and physically. When Damon intervenes, pointing out that if Patsy didn't want Isaac there, maybe she should have said something about that before they left the sanctum, Patsy is like, You know what? Fuck you too. You're getting awful judgy for a guy whose dad poses for the pictures on cans of ham. After a second, Patsy calms down and apologizes. Damon shrugs it off and waves his hands over Dolly's comatose body. It turns out that one of Son of Satan's many nonsense powers is the ability to heal wounds. Neat. Also, maybe you could have led with that. Or, you know, have done that at any point during the week or so that Dolly's been hospitalized? After a few minutes of intense concentration, Damon announces that while it will take some time for her to recover fully, thanks to his ministrations, eventually, Dolly Donahue will be just fine. Hooray! No sooner has Hellstrom delivered this optimistic prognosis than an astral image of Doctor Strange appears and requests that the three heroes return to the Sanctum. When they arrive, Steve gathers them around the Orb of Agamotto and proudly announces that he has finally concluded that the image of the Welcome to Detroit sign the Orb showed him probably has something to do with Detroit. So, maybe they should go there. Nice work, Steve. I knew you'd get there sooner or later. Son of Satan takes a look at the pictogram and is like, Hey, and that's Ghost Rider's head. 
I bet he's mixed up in this somehow. Steve is like, Yes, I totally knew that, and definitely didn't spend the last few hours lighting skulls on fire, because I thought that was what the orb was telling me to do. Despite the fact that it is nearly sunset, at which point he will be once again granted the fantastical power of the strength of two strong men, Kyle asks if he can sit this one out, so that he can take some time to process things. Before he even gets a chance to ask if they can bring him back a slice of some thick square pizza with weird cheese, or a replica Rashid Wallace jersey, the gang is like, Okay, bye Kyle! And teleports off to Detroit. A few minutes later, in the heart of Motor City, Johnny Blaze is riding his regular, not-at-all-on-fire motorcycle down the street, thinking about how he ought to check out the house his boss, Asmodeus Jones, has rented for the week, because he bets something fishy and probably satanic is going on out there, when a blast of hellfire knocks him off of his non-flaming bike and sends him reeling. From a nearby rooftop, Damon Hellstrom shouts, Hello, Ghost Rider! It's me, Son of Satan, and my friends, the Defenders. We'd like to talk. So, how are things? For some reason, Johnny interprets Damon's unprovoked attack as an act of aggression. Weird. Must be a Detroit thing. The perturbed motorcycle enthusiast activates his Ghost Rider powers. Once his head and motorcycle are both on fire, the former stuntman starts scrapping with his perceived enemies, the Defenders. Things are touch and go for a minute or two, but Steve teleports them all to a nearby junkyard so that they won't have to worry about bystanders, and from that point forward, the scales seem to tip in the Defenders' favor. Patsy, Gargoyle, and Valkyrie hold the do-gooding demon biker in place, and Damon performs a, like, half-ass semi-exorcism, which changes Ghost Rider back into Johnny Blaze. You know, the way he was before they attacked him for no reason and forced his transformation. Once Johnny is all humaned up again, the gang fills him in on what they've been up to lately. When they get to the part about the six-fingered hand, Blaze pipes up and is like, Hey! Asmodeus had a picture of a hand with six fingers on all of his merch! I figured it was just a reference to Count Rugen from The Princess Bride. You know, the book. Because they haven't made a movie about that yet. But if they did, I bet the guy who played Charlie Ford in The Long Riders would make a really good Count Rugen. Anyway, do you think Asmodeus Jones is connected to this demonic finger puppet thing you were talking about? Steve is like, Only one way to know for sure. You say this Jones fellow is renting a house near here? Johnny is like, yeah, he and his manager were headed there a little while ago with, like, a whole bunch of groupies. Steve is like, mm, groupies, you say? I don't suppose any of these groupies were tiny flame ghosts, were they? No? Well, no matter. I suppose I'd still best send my astral form over there to spy on them and see if they're up to anything sexy. I, I mean, evil. Steve, away! When Ghost Steve arrives at the rental house, he finds that Asmodeus and his manager Felix are just finishing up some bizarre ritual involving a quintet of young ladies. After the women depart, Felix turns to Asmodeus and is like, Man, I sure am tired of all these power transfer rituals that Fashima makes us do to change the adoration of your fans into worship points that make her more powerful. This metaphysical accounting process is oddly complicated. Asmodeus is like, 
Shut up, Felix. I'm sick of you and your exposition. The deal you made with Fashima made me rich and famous and gave me demon powers to boot. And I think that's neat. Felix is like, I'm not done angrily expositing at you. At tonight's concert, you and Fashima are going to merge into a single entity, and then all of your fans will be agents of the Six-Fingered Hand and will have to do their bidding. And when you're a big-shot half-demon or whatever, I want you to remember that I'm the one who brokered this deal with demons. Do you hear? Also, why am I yelling when we don't actually seem to be in disagreement about anything? Asmodeus is like, I don't know, but now I'm yelling too! and he sends some kind of demon bolt out of his forehead that knocks his manager to the ground. At this point, Ghost Steve has seen enough to know that A, the defenders had better act tonight if they want to stop Fashima, and 2, those groupies probably aren't coming back to do any more kinky rituals. So he flies off to rejoin his comrades at the junkyard. That night's concert is a sold-out show. Steve and the rest of the defenders stand on a balcony behind a magical veil of invisibility and watch the evening's entertainment. After a few songs, Asmodeus begins to lead his audience in a chant of Fashima's name, and, as in the opening sequence of the book, a creepy-ass demon in an evening gown appears hovering in the air above him. As the chants from the crowd grow more frenzied, Fashima's image grows larger and seems to solidify. Then, just when Fashima is almost fully tangible, Ghost Rider drives his magically on-fire motorcycle on stage and starts attacking Asmodeus Jones. The startled satanic singer strikes back at his flaming-skulled foe with all of his borrowed demonic might, and with every blast of eldritch nonsense that he shoots out of his forehead, Fashima grows slightly less tangible. Hmm. Ghost Rider is like, Hey, Asmodeus, the six-fingered hand sent me to kill you. They don't like you anymore. Jones freaks out when he hears this and doubles down on his forehead blasts. Felix runs out from backstage and is like, What the fuck is going on? But Asmodeus is sure that Felix has perpetrated some sort of double cross and begins lashing out at his manager as well as Ghost Rider. From the balcony high above, the defenders notice that the mesmeric thrall the rock singer had held his audience in is starting to weaken. This is the cue for which they had been waiting. Zooming down from their lofty vantage point on some floating platforms that I guess Steve made out of magic or something, the defenders join in on the attack of Asmodeus Jones. The frantic frontman girds himself for battle by siphoning all the power out of Fashima that he can, which turns out to be quite a lot. Too much, in fact. The surge of stolen soul energy short-circuits the musician and causes the shimmering image of Fashima to explode. Asmodeus Jones collapses to the stage, a drained and exhausted husk of his former self. Felix rushes in to cradle the fallen musician in his arms. The concerned manager demands that the defenders tell him what happened. Son of Satan is like, we spied on him and learned that Asmodeus was an arrogant jerkwad who didn't trust you, so we pranked him into gobbling up too much demon power at once and burning out both himself and Fashima. Pretty good prank, right? Now that the demon's been defeated, though, he'll probably have to face some consequences from the rest of the six-fingered hand. Sucks to be him, right? Felix D. Palmer looks up from his prone client and says solemnly, No. It sucks to be me. I was the one who made the deal with those demons, so I'm the one who has to go to hell now, or whatever. See ya. The lights flicker briefly, 
and when illumination is restored, Felix is gone. A distraught Asmodeus Jones weeps openly and mourns the loss of his manager. Isaac puts a gargoyly hand on the singer's shoulder and attempts to comfort him, but Son of Satan is like, No, Isaac, fuck this guy. People who make deals with demons deserve neither pity nor redemption. I mean, unless they did it to save their father. That's why you did it, right, Ghost Rider? No offense. Oh, um, I guess if it was to restore economic prosperity to a town they like, that's okay too? I I'm sorry, guys. We're really cool with that? Why are we okay with Isaac again? Asmodeus Jones cuts him off and is like, No, I get it. Asmodeus Jones is an evil rock and roll douchebag. But I used to be just a regular guy named Ozzy Palmer. And that guy just lost his brother Felix. Can I have a minute to grieve? The defenders are shocked at the revelation of the fraternal relationship Ozzy held with his now hellbound manager. They stare in stunned silence. Except for Hellcat. When she hears Ozzy's heartfelt plea, Patsy's face breaks out in a shit-eating grin, and the cat cosplaying crime fighter starts laughing her ass off. Huh. Maybe she just remembered how long it took Steve to figure out that a picture of a sign that said, Welcome to Detroit, might mean that they should go to Detroit. That is pretty funny. To be continued. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty great. It's so beautiful outside right now. It's uh, uplifting. It is. I mildly disapprove, but so far, the novelty is still nice enough that I do not mind the slightly warm weather. At what temperature... Does your mild disapproval turn to actual disapproval? What Do you have, like, a cutoff? Ah, uh, high 80s. Okay. So we were not even close to that today, right? No, no, it was, like, mid-80s, I think, right? I don't know. I didn't look. I just seemed nice, but... Yeah. No, it was it was very nice. We got some, uh, some cherry blossoms on our tree. Mm. Those were fun to look at. It's a really big tree, and so the cherries that it makes are just like, there's barely enough cherry to cover the pit. It's <laughs> like it's like a prank cherry, uh, but uh, still, it's pretty. That's nice. Then it's agreed. Nature is pretty sometimes. Yeah. Well, Corey, you want to talk about this comic book? Sure. So, Corey, what did you think of this comic book? Oh, man, this one was fun for me. You know, it was for me, too. I don't think it was necessarily even one of the better ones that we've read recently, but it went down real smooth. Yeah, I mean, part of that was it wasn't the last comic we read. Yeah, Infinity Inc. 45 was not good. But I don't know. I'm getting into this six-fingered hand storyline. Yeah, me too. Part of what I like about it is the pacing is done in such a way that each issue also works as a standalone issue, but it also furthers the general plot of the Six-Fingered Hand. Like, this is a distinct adventure where they find a demon and they thwart a demon, and it works as its own little package, but it also 
just builds what's going on too. It's it's nice. It's like a midway point between one of the X Files episodes where it's like, oh, we're going to a weird town and we found a I don't know werewolf slug or something, and one of the ones where it's like, oh, there's bees and conspiracy, and I don't know what's happening. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a a nice midway point, and I like that about it. Yeah, it's a real bee wolf slug. Exactly. Oh boy, that's a dangerous critter. Yeah. I think the speed at which it would move makes it not dangerous, if, assuming it can't fly. It's like a flightless bee slug. Right. And its teeth are connected to its abdomen like a bee stinger. So if it bites you once, it leaves its tooth in you and then it dies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not a well-designed creature. No, it just run away. Yeah, I'm surprised they bothered sending Mulder and Scully out after it. Well... Like you pointed out, the show had some good episodes, some were confusing. Tough, but fair. So we get to see Ghost Rider in this episode. That was fun. Yay. Are you a fan of Ghost Rider? Yeah, like kind of peripherally. Nicolas Cage played Ghost Rider, didn't he? Yeah, a couple of times. Okay. Those, not so much. I mean, they're fun, but not so much. But yeah, as a kid, I remember thinking he was super badass on account of the motorcycle and the flaming skull and whatnot. Yeah, I mean... That's a pretty easy shorthand for a kid's version of what's cool and tough. Yeah. Flaming skull, check. Motorcycle, check. And to top it off, his secret identity is a stuntman. I feel like if they could have figured out a plausible way to put tattoos on a skeleton, they probably would have done that as well. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the Nicolas Cage movies? I think I fell asleep during one of them, and it was one of those things where you wake up and you're like, how the heck did I fall asleep? It was so loud and explodey and stuff that was my reaction to the second one of those like the first one was exactly for me the right kind of big and stupid and over the top and i actually had a lot of fun watching that one and then the second one seems like it should have been even more so because it was a sequel so you're expecting more and it was the guys that made crank 2 which i thought was hilarious and wonderfully over the top and then I was like, how do these elements even kind of combine into a thing that is boring? Mm. Well, shucks, I'm going to have to watch the first one maybe again. Yeah, there's a scene in which Nicolas Cage inexplicably chugs a novelty martini glass full of jelly beans, I think. Oh, that sounds so painful on your throat. Yeah, I, and I don't know why he did it. And apparently when he filmed the movie, he like the flames were put on in CGI, but when he was Ghost Rider, he would like draw flames on his head or something. I must be misremembering that. Mm. Yeah, maybe I'm not. <laughs> anyway, I also like Ghost Rider, and he's the kind of character that I'm almost surprised he hasn't showed up in the Defenders before, because he's, you know, has ties to the occult, so you would expect that he might show up every now and again. And he's also the type of character that gets brought into the Defenders a lot, which is kind of a B or C tier hero who is also famed for being a loner. And so I think he fits right in with the Defenders. I think probably the reason that he didn't was because he had previously been on a team called the Champions, which was a different 70s Marvel team, which was also a fair amount of fun. That's a great name. It really is. It was such a weird mishmash of characters. It was Ghost Rider, Black Widow, 
Hercules, Beast, and Iceman from the X-Men. No, it wasn't Beast. I'm sorry. It was Iceman and Angel from the X-Men. And it just never quite gelled. Hmm. So teamwork didn't make the dream work. It did not. Which leads me to question everything I've learned from motivational posters. Maybe it is my aptitude, not my attitude, that determines my altitude. Something to think about. What did you think of uh, our new friend uh, Asmodeus Jones? Oh, man. I just kept thinking, like, I wish Danzig had worn that outfit. (laughs) It was a really weird presentation of that character i felt like and of the rock and roll devil music heavy metal scene in general Mm -hmm. it didn't quite work oh no no not at all that's what made it so much fun yeah i feel like a lot of that is probably a disconnect between the writer and the art team on this there's an age divide there that you saw a lot at marvel during this era the average age for an artist was i think about 20 years older than the average age for the writer. Hmm. At least that was the case during a lot of the Bronze Age. And that is what you see here. Don Perlin and Joe Sinnott are both in their, I think, at least 50s at this point. And J.M. Dematius is a younger guy who had actually written as a rock critic for Rolling Stone before. So I suspect that he may not have realized what a different frame of reference he had than his artists for the scene he was describing, and he maybe gave them a looser description and was like, these guys know what I'm talking about. And they're like, uh, okay, uh, this is what the kids like, right? We're gonna need some, uh, some tall Jawas. Those were popular. Sure, sure, gotta have those. And uh, let's see, uh, for like a a sexy demon, mm, how about a, I don't know, a Ferengi with a seashell on its head wearing an evening gown? Mm -hmm. And a guy's gotta have uh, some really vivid makeup. I guess that's the one part that they actually got, because it does have kind of a maybe member of Kiss, not eyeshadow, but like big things painted around his eyes. Yeah, the face paint around the eyes I thought was really well done, but then they also were just like, and uh, I guess we'll also face paint on a soul patch, too? Yeah, and then we'll give him one of those medical tattoos. Yeah, there's like a, what was the thing called a catechus? The uh, the two-headed serpent wrapped around a stick? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a very confusing look that he was going for. <laughs> like, big puffy sleeves on a low V-cut one-piece bathing suit yep with high hips cutouts and they put all of that thought into his outfit and then for the rest of the band they're just like ah let's see they're evil they're in a cult so uh purple robes you don't see their faces done jawas (laughs) yeah jawas exactly and also the instruments that they're playing there's like a maybe a little toy piano i think that's supposed to be a keyboard of some type but it makes it look like they just decided to put the guy running the lighting display on stage (laughs) and he's really excited to be there because he's just waving at the crowd hey guys yeah it totally is also none of the stringed instrument players have straps on their instruments their arms are gonna get so tired it's well you can't really it just doesn't work Mm. you can't play it like that Well, not with only five fingers. (laughs) 
I checked, and the keyboard guy has five fingers. That's right. You can count them real easily because he's waving at the crowd. Yeah. It reminded me a little bit of the band scene of uh, of Dragon Sound and Miami Connection. Ooh, yeah. Where they're not even really trying to fake play the instruments, especially <laughs> like the lead guy who's just running around holding the guitar. Yeah, it reminded me of a couple of things. It reminded me of like when in cartoons they would try to do like a punk rock episode. Like when I think in like G.I. Joe, they had the band of punk rockers called the Dreadnoughts. Or sorry, it was the Dreadnoughts were playing a punk rock band called Cold Slither, which for some reason I still remember the song that they had. Uh, We are Cold Slither. You'll be joining us soon. A band of vipers playing our tunes. (laughs) That's pretty good. You know, punk rock. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. This is punk as it gets. So it kind of reminded me of that. It mostly reminded me of, did you ever see the 70s version of A Star is Born? Uh, No, I've seen neither version of that. It looked like kind of a bummer. Well, you can't really say neither, because I think there are at least four versions of it now. But yeah, definitely a bummer. Uh, I, I believe every version of it has been a bummer thus far. Oh. But the 70s version was interesting because it was Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson. and. Barbara Streisand was definitely, like, the creative force behind it. And I think most of the songs on the soundtrack were written by either her or Paul Williams, who's the guy who wrote We've Only Just Begun for the Carpenters. And Chris Christopherson's character is supposed to be, like, a hard-rocking, over-the-top, degenerate, heavy musician. I don't think it's heavy metal yet, but he's definitely supposed to be hard rock. Hmm. But it's Barbara Streisand and Paul Williams writing the songs for him. And so it's like what they thought that meant. And there was definitely a disconnect there. And I kind of felt that when I was looking at the staging of Asmodeus Jones and his band, which I feel ripped off that his band doesn't have a name. Uh, yeah, I know what you mean, but it's I think it really goes with his character. Oh, yeah, he, he's definitely a, a real ball hog. Yep. Barbara Streisand. (laughs) He really is. (laughs) While we're on Asmodeus Jones, what did you think of the decor in the house that he rented? I was so, like, kind of, I guess, distracted by trying to imagine what sort of kink they had gotten up to. I think I I missed the uh, decor. It's very unclear. So the, the decor is, like, basically they've just set up a bunch of pillows on the floor. They've got a statue of Bashima. Which, that makes sense, but I feel like it's really tacky to put your own merch up as a poster on the wall when you're having your uh, your demonic orgy. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a faux pas. Like, you can be excused for wearing your own band's t-shirt when you're on tour because you've got a lot of them and it's hard to find a place to do laundry sometimes. But you don't keep putting the posters up in a house that you rent for a week. That's true. That is... Uh... You wouldn't put really anything up on the walls in a house that you rent for a week if you were a traveling musician, I would imagine. You wouldn't think. It, it's one of those moves where it's just like, you can see that it's held up with tax. Like, you, they drew in the tax holding the poster up on the wall, I think to make it clear that it's a poster. But it's a combination of just like, oh, so they're a, a degenerate, satanic rock and roll guy. They're doing damage to their rental house but also on such a small scale that it's like, that's not throwing a TV out a hotel window. That's just, it's just dumb. 
I mean, if you're going to lose the security deposit anyway, at least make it worth your while. Yeah, that is a good point. Um, that said, like, if I could get a copy of that poster, if I had a, <laughs> I don't know, like, put it in my basement or something. Ah, uh, you mean from Asmodeus Jones's To Hell and Back tour? Yeah, that is a pretty sweet poster for, like, a 80s rock, like, heavy rock. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's heavy metal quite yet. <laughs> um it's understated. It really is. It's a very simplistic design. I think just the to hell and back as the the tour title and now knowing what the six-fingered hand thing stands for. I still probably would not put that on my wall. I guess you're, you know, la- have a laxer attitude towards demonic sacrifice than I do, but I I understand. I remember when we were growing up, you had a cramps poster on your wall that scared the shit out of me. Oh, yeah, that was the creepy illustration of the kind of skull-faced, big-haired guy from the bad music for bad people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, that freaked me out. Did you ever see the Cramps play? I never saw them play. I liked their music a lot, you know, later on once I, I stopped being... Well, I never really did stop being afraid of that poster, but... <laughs> it's a creepy poster. Yeah. I I was a little freaked out by Lux Interior, their singer, on the stage. Yeah. Like, you know, I was pretty interested in partying at that stage of my life, and he was one of those people you see and you're like, oh, I shouldn't do drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did see, uh, I don't think it was the Pokes, I think it was Shane McGowan and the Popes play one time, hmm. and I was like, oh, this doesn't glamorize alcohol, this is a cautionary tale. <laughs> yeah. But you mentioned in the Asmodeus Jones demon sex orgy room, they're talking about what kind of kink they were into, but we see that, like, the dudes at least, they're wearing these robes, and then they take the robes off and they're wearing full suits under them. And the vibe that I was getting from what was happening there more than anything else, it seemed almost more bureaucratic than decadent. Because, like, after the groupies leave, the manager, Felix, is like, I'm getting sick of these power transfer rituals. The things Fashima makes us do. And Asmodeus is like, a, what's the matter, Felix, my manager, getting soft? Fashima made me a star, gave both of us plenty of broads and bucks. So what if we have to do a few things in return? It makes it seem like this selling your soul to the six-fingered hand thing is like an MLM, like Amway or something. And that is the vibe of, like, the alleged orgy that was on the previous page. It seemed more like a Tupperware party than anything else. Were they just using their celebrity to get these girls to sign up to sell Tupperware for them. Ooh, or to, like, sell their souls and then tell their friends. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, it'll either cost you your soul, or if you get five of your friends to sell their souls for us, then it'll only cost you a fraction of your soul. Mm -hmm. I get the impression that it is something like that which makes me think that the six-fingered hand is even more evil than I had initially suspected. Because wanting me to sell my immortal soul is one thing, but also wanting me to annoy my friends? That's another kettle of fish. Yeah, good point. Did you ever um, have a job where you had to try and sell stuff to strangers? I never had a job doing that. I went for a job interview one time, And it turned out that it was like they put like six of us in a van and they had me shadow somebody who was doing door-to-door sales of that type. And it was just horrifying. (laughs) 
And it was like an hour drive to get to the place where they were doing the door-to-door sales, so I couldn't just leave. Ugh. I still remember the guy saying like, oh yeah, that no soliciting sign, you can just ignore that. Yeah, that's like my worst nightmare. I don't think I could do it. Have you ever had a job like that? Not selling stuff. I, I did have that job with uh, Osberg, Oregon Public Interest Research Group, where like you go knock on people's doors and ask them for money for causes like public. Oh, I mean, it's, uh, I'm glad people are able to do that. I don't begrudge people that, and I know it's for a good cause, but wow, that sounds terrible to me. Oh, yeah. I did it for five days and then didn't even go get my paycheck. <laughs> Why wouldn't you go get your paycheck? I was just like, dude because it paid very little (laughs) Mm. and also i was just like i can't go back to that place what they made me do (laughs) i totally understand it was awful Uh also a young woman there said that i looked like bob dylan and i think she was trying to compliment me but that just was so weird you don't look like bob dylan not even a little bit no you looked when you were younger you looked a little bit like a hybrid of Corey Feldman and Corey Haim, and your name was Corey, which at that time was considered a very good thing. Oh yeah, no, that was that was cool. I would have taken <laughs> that, in, especially when I was, I don't know, 12. But I don't know, man. Asking strangers for money and getting called Bob Dylan? No thanks. <laughs> man, having people tell you what they think you look like is the worst. I still think one of the smartest decisions I ever made, and this is years ago now, but I was bartending and a person came up to me and was like, oh my God, you look exactly like my friend. Let me show you a picture of them. And I said, oh, no, thank you. Because history has taught me that would not have gone well. And I'm very proud of myself for recognizing that. I've worked very hard to build a self-image that has virtually no basis in reality. And I don't need anybody fucking that up for me. Just to get back to Asmodeus Jones for a second, um, I get the impression he's probably supposed to be like an Alice Cooper type character, something like that. Uh, maybe influenced by Ozzy Osbourne as well, which makes it a really weird moment at the end when after the defenders have just kicked his butt and knocked the demon out of him and his brother has just been carted off to hell, he looks all tearfully at the defenders and He's like, no, maybe Asmondius Jones doesn't deserve any of your pity. But what about regular old Ozzy Palmer? I'm like, that's not less of a rock and roll name. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good name. Like, the last name is maybe a lateral move in terms of rock and rollness. Like Jones, Palmer, either way on that one. The oh. Asmodius for Ozzy... It is weird specifically, especially given like the cultural references of the time that he's just like, I'm not a rock and roll star anymore. Just as a regular guy, I'm just a regular guy named Ozzy. I'm like, yeah, that's a rock and roll name. It's totally a rock and roll name. And I think it definitely was at at that time. I don't know where Black Sabbath or Ozzy Osbourne's later stuff was in 81, but he was certainly out there. Yeah, I think I think that was after he'd gone solo. But I don't know. I I thought it was a pretty clever name because Asmodeus is a is a biblical like demon, mm-hmm. and then Jones is like you know the Joneses next door. It's I thought it was pretty clever. No, as Asmodeus Jones, I think is a really good rock and roll name. It's just that the big reveal that he's not a rock star, he's just plain old Aussie, was just like that. You you maybe should have come up with a different name. 
Yeah, I was pretty sure the reason they chose it was an Ozzy Osbourne reference. I was waiting for him to bite the head off a bat or something. He doesn't, but did you notice the quote that he does start off his song with? Um, I did, but I didn't catch what it was referencing. Nothing is true, everything is permitted. 666 is the number to get to. As he's quoting uh, Hassan Isabah, founder of the Order of Has- founder of Assassination and Hashishism. Oh man, my Robert Anton Wilsonisms are so <laughs> lax now. I know, dude. I'm gonna have to confiscate your copy of the Illuminatus trilogy. <laughs> I, I hate to disappoint you, but I think I sold it to Powell's Books about 20 years ago. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, you got me into the Robert Anton Wilson thing back then when I was just an impressionable young teen. Oh, man, it was really intriguing at that point. Oh, I totally wanted to go live on that drug submarine with Captain Hagbard Celine and his undercover hippie secret agents or whatever. But no, I read that and I was just like, wait a minute, that phrase sounds familiar. Is that? Oh, yeah. And that particular phrase, I think, is one that comes up a fair amount in, like, quasi-metaphysical spiritualist circles. I know it got used by William Burroughs in Naked Lunch, and I think has cropped up in a few other places as well. And uh, that is a world that Dematis definitely dabbles in. So I thought that was kind of a telling reference, and also it was just like, oh, man! I haven't read Illuminatus trilogy in a long time. Gosh, yeah, I won't even say I wonder if it holds up, because I'm pretty sure it wouldn't. But just like for nostalgia, that might be a fun read. I think it would hold up in the same way as like a pulp novel from any era. But yeah, that that was part of what made that book really fun, was that it was like, I think, intentionally cheesy pulp adventure fiction mixed with weird metaphysical nonsense. Um, But it definitely did also take those ideas very seriously. Oh, yeah. No, it seemed quite serious at the time. I remember staring at a $1 bill pretty hard trying to make (laughs) out what that pyramid was up to after reading those books. Man, you had a dollar? (laughs) Yeah, I was looking for fnords. Man, you remember when ridiculous conspiracy theories were goofy fun instead of terrifying political movements? Ugh. We also saw a familiar face return in this issue, one that I was actually surprised at how happy I was to see again. Kyle's lawyer, Mr. Rosenblum. Do you have any thoughts on that scene? I was taken aback at how kind of touchy-feely and, I guess, affectionate Val was being, not just with Kyle, but also with Rosenblum. Yeah, it wasn't so much in the dialogue, but in the body language and, and the drawings, it did seem as though she was very much taking a maternal role towards Kyle and, to an extent, the lawyer, too. It did seem a little bit out of character. And I think, unfortunately, it's probably just another example of the creative team accidentally defaulting towards having the women in the book provide emotional support to the men in the book, regardless of their previously defined characters. I was mostly taken by the fact that we see, once again, the lawyer has a TV on in the background while he's taking his law meeting with Kyle. At this point, I feel like that has to be an intentional choice and maybe an in-joke that the art team is making. But 
it it does crack me up that that is such a consistent thing that we see every time every time Rosenblum takes a meeting with Kyle he is half watching TV out of his peripheral vision yeah I would have been shocked if he wasn't watching TV the weird thing is when Kyle leaves the TV's off well he only wants to have the TV on while Kyle's there hmm when Kyle's gone, he's just like, now I can be alone with my thoughts. I don't need to distract myself from that rich bird-themed jerk. <laughs> uh, who he cares about, though. Who he cares about, but you can also tell not just from the fact that he turns on the TV whenever Kyle enters a room and turns it off after he leaves, that he doesn't pay attention to what Kyle's saying. You can tell that because he notices, and frankly, I'm surprised that he notices that Kyle is now in a wheelchair. And he asks him how it happened. And Kyle gives an explanation that's actually a very succinct. I was shocked at how succinct and concise he summed up what had happened to him in terms of being attacked by demonic forces and having a mystical link to his life force that got saved by a sorcerer that he knows. And Rosenblum responds like, Kyle, how can you joke at a time like this? He knows Kyle. He knows Kyle is a superhero. Like, Kyle doesn't have that secret identity. He knows specifically that Kyle is a superhero who associates with Doctor Strange. There was that whole documentary about them that Dollar Bill made. Like, (laughs) why is he incredulous about that information? I guess he was just distracted by TV and only heard some of it. That's a good point. I don't know. I mean, it would be ridiculous if it turned out that he didn't, he hadn't been paying so little attention that he did not know that Kyle was a superhero, considering half the time he represents him, he is in costume. That's true. Maybe he just thinks he's a rich asshole and he didn't see the documentary. You know what? You're probably right. This guy's like, well, shit, if I had billions of dollars, I'd probably wear a bird costume every now and then, too. Yeah, seems fun. One of my favorite scenes in this issue is when Steve is doing his meditation to try to figure out where on earth these demons could strike next. And he's been at it for quite some time. He's been there, I think he says like six or seven hours, locked in his room, looking at these images that he's summoned on the Orb of Agamotto. And it's four images. It is a large billboard that says, Welcome to Detroit. A picture of Ghost Rider's head, a picture of the demon Fushima, and an electric guitar. And he's like, what could this possibly mean? I asked the forces to tell me where the demons will strike next, and they sent me the sign that says, welcome to Detroit? Where are those demons going to strike? Is it, I don't know, just two on the nose, or (laughs) shall we go to Motor City? Could be anywhere. What does it mean? Also, I think it's weird that he has his orb of Agamotto set on Rebus instead of words or whatever. Like, oh, I, you know, I've been watching a lot of classic concentration lately <laughs> during the daytime, and I thought it might be fun to try to put together a word puzzle. Let's see. Detroit guitar. Hmm. Detroit cars. Motown. Motown, Ghost Rider, Motown Ghost, Ghosts of Motown, Mo, Hmm, Smokey Robinson, no, he's still alive. Hmm. Guitar, nope, Hmm. that's not it. Demon, 
Okay, I'm going to start from the other end. (laughs) I think it absolutely nails it in the scene, Wong's reaction, because you do see Wong just looking at Steve like he's the dumbest piece of shit in the world. (laughs) And Steve completely missing the sarcasm when he says, what can they mean? (laughs) It's that expression that, like, when you look at somebody with such disdain, it looks like you've eaten something incredibly sour. (laughs) He just looks disgusted. He really does. Like, that is the look of a guy who has been forced to be Steve's partner at Pictionary before and is so tired of this. He is just looking at him like, you stupid motherfucker. Like, But like, it makes him angry. <laughs> mm-hmm. Speaking of stupid motherfuckers, I'm sorry. If you have had a negative interaction with somebody and you're going to see them again, and you need a favor from them, here's what my opening salvo would not be. Blasting them with hellfire off of their motorcycle, and then saying, oh, I just had to get your attention somehow. Anyway, we'd like a favor. Oh my gosh. Yeah, way to make an entrance, but (laughs) not a good way to get what you want. No, I I mean, I think maybe he was really proud of himself that he'd figured out how to make Ghost Rider turn back into Johnny Blaze. And he's like, well, I'm going to use that spell regardlessly, so we may as well start it off with a big fight. Wanted to get his his Steve Irwin on. This will rile him up. That's not an Australian accent. It's a very good Australian accent, It was bad. You say, do your Steve Irwin, this will rile him up. I don't have a this will rile him up, but uh, my Australian accent was born from uh, being bored working in a Lebanese restaurant. Me and my friend Nick would occasionally pretend to be Australian while waiting tables, and we would both adopt terrible, terrible Australian accents, but everyone believed his because he was English. Mm Mm-hmm. And so they're like, oh, he's got some kind of accent. Nobody believed mine. But I would really enjoy rolling up on tables and just being like, gaffer some more tavoli, mate. (laughs) Of course you did. But it's, yeah, it's such a bad way to reconnect with a former frenemy. It is really to Ghost Rider's credit that he is able to put that behind him and work with the defenders. Well, I had some questions about that. So... It's been so long since I've read anything with Ghost Rider in it. I can't quite remember how the Johnny Blaze versus Ghost Rider personality stuff works. But is it that the spell that Son of Satan puts on him makes him amenable to do good deeds even when he's in his Ghost Rider self? A Ghost Rider is a good guy. I know he's a good guy, but isn't he like a kind of more of like a chaotic good Uh, I think kind of. It really, really depends on when it's being written. I think generally the Ghost Rider character is more like single-minded and a little bit of an anti-hero in the way that it pursues vengeance. And at this point, the Ghost Rider persona is separate from the Johnny Blaze persona. When they had encountered each other last time, and Ghost Rider makes reference to this, he was just Johnny Blaze with Ghost Rider's powers when he was Ghost Rider. And that has flipped back and forth a bunch. At this point, they are more separate entities. He turns into Ghost Rider, and then Ghost Rider has his own personality. But Johnny Blaze can still, it seems like, make decisions for how they will proceed. It's a little nebulous at this point. Okay, that story checks out. I did notice when they tackled him, there was just a really weird scene with the way that Isaac tackled him. Did you notice that too? It... 
First of all, I love his reaction to starting to have his ass kicked, which is when Patsy grabs him. He says, you dare? I loved Val's response to that, which was, we dare anything. Yeah, but you're right. Then that's followed up by Isaac belly flopping onto his chest. So he is perpendicular to a fully lying down ghost rider. His chest makes contact with his chest. It looks like he's going into like blow raspberries on his tummy, maybe. Mm. But it's a really confusing panel. And at first I thought they had just misdrawn Ghost Rider's head onto Isaac's body. But that's not really what's going on there. I had trouble figuring out what it was, but I think honestly it makes sense if Isaac is just not good at fighting yet. Like, he's in this fancy new body, and it's big and strong and tough and has some magic, but he's not great at using it, so he's just, like, really klutzy, and he doesn't really know how to fight. I think it makes sense in that context, but it made for a really weird panel. Yeah, I agree. It is super weird. It's I guess it's, they were trying to capture the dynamism of the situation where both he and Val are literally diving headfirst into the fray to subdue this enemy. Mm-hmm. But it really does look like he's going to try to blow raspberries on his tummy. And that's not going to work because as Ghost Rider, I don't think he has a tummy. Mm. I think he's got like a rib cage. You would have to play those like a xylophone if you want to make musical noises out of his tummy. Gargoyle. Such a hack. <laughs> Missed opportunity to play a skeleton's rib cage like a xylophone. Ugh. That's another strike against the gargoyle for me. Yeah, I'm going to have to change my worst offender now. <laughs> There was one other thing that I wanted to mention about the concert that they have their big fight on at the end. I I wanted to say... There were some picket signs in effect. God damn it. (laughs) What the... What the fuck is that? I guess I should leave the industrial work site that I'm on. <laughs> I can't find ham horn anymore. I'm forced to use these knockoff <laughs> air horns. It's no good, man. I love it. It's my favorite inadvertent segment is Corey tries to work the air horn. <laughs> they weren't particularly imaginative picket signs, I gotta say. And maybe they don't count as picket signs because they're all in support of Asmodeus. But I did really like that scene nonetheless. Firstly, I liked that at least one person decided, "Eh, you know what, I'll just put words on this thing when I get there. (laughs) Because there's just one blank picket sign. I wonder if maybe they weren't sure which concert they were going to go to just yet. And then they're like, well, you know, when I make up my mind, I'll bring the markers with me. And that way, if we go see Asmodeus Jones, I'll make a sign that says, I love Asmodeus or the devil forever or something like that. And if we go see Anne Murray, I'll make a sign that says, you've got a friend. And I appreciate the versatility. But in general, I think it's good to know which concert you're going to when you leave the house. And that is not the only person there who maybe could use some pointers on planning a concert going experience. My favorite thing about that panel is the guy in the lower right-hand corner who's like, you guys, I thought we were all going to dress like demons. Yep. 
The cape and the headgear and the whole deal. He is dressed like the demon from DC Comics, and I think that is an intentional in-joke, but he just looks so out of place in that crowd. And there's something about the way his shoulders are slumped that it really does look like he's just like, oh man, thought there'd be way more people dressed like demons than this. Mm -hmm. I remember being in line at my first stadium concert ever, which was a, a Dio concert. Ooh. In Maine, I think. And uh, there was a guy, like, I had never seen so much, like, metal gear in one place, like like jean jackets with back patches of all different sorts. But one guy just had, like, in ballpoint pen written over and over on the back of his jean jacket, heavy metal. Whoa! <laughs> and I was like, that, that covers it, man. <laughs> That's awesome. Good for him. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't need a patch. Have you seen Canada's new Olympic uniforms? Strangely, no. Okay, I want you to look up Canadian Olympic uniforms real quick. I'm getting several images. It's not the jean jacket, right? It is the jean jacket, Corey. That can't be for real. That's going to be a we're making fun of Canada thing. No, it's for real, Corey. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I would not guarantee that those do not have the words heavy metal written (laughs) in ballpoint pen on the back of them over and over again. And I got to say, I love them. Wow. That's, um, I I normally kind of hate contrived, like mass produced looking things that are attempting not to look that way, like pre-ripped jeans or things from Nordstrom that say punk rock on them. Mm Mm-hmm. But... I don't know if there's something kind of charming about this street art writ large jacket. It would definitely put it over the top for me if if it did have uh, heavy metal written in ballpoint pen on it. But uh, either way, honestly, I think they are tremendous. Oh, Canada. (laughs) Like the song. We stand on guard for thee. Exactly. Back to the fight scene with everybody versus Asmondius Jones. Asmodius. I keep getting that wrong. God damn it. It's on a picket sign. <laughs> I need to read my picket signs more clearly. You're, you're right. My picket sign comprehension skills have really declined since we were covering the original Teen Titans series. Yeah, how to practice. But when they're having the big fight scene with uh, Asmodius Jones, since when can Patsy fire energy beams? Did you catch that? She's, like, firing it out of her face, too. Yeah. I wonder if that is a holdover, if Perlin didn't, like, get the memo, maybe, that Moondragon took her psychic powers and fucked off back to space. But she can't fire beams out of her head, I'm pretty sure, unless this is foreshadowing, because she is acting all wackadoo in this episode. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, where the way that the comic ends... I mean, maybe she does have some demonic mojo going on. Or maybe it's connected to those weird fucking hover discs that they all get to fly around on, which look totally badass. Like, the stadium at the Asmodeus Jones show must think this is part of the best special effects routine ever. Oh man, can you imagine? That would be great. It it looks so much fun. Yeah. I'll tell you, though... As a kid at that Deho show, there was a, I don't know, 20-foot-tall demon in the background with smoke and lasers and everything. 
And yeah. if it had been real, it would have been really scary. Yes, I would agree, Corey. A 20-foot-tall demon with lasers would be very scary if it were real. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe a little too much? Yeah, I think you're probably right. The cover art on this is amazing. It's so metal. It totally is. It is once again by Michael Golden. He is the person who did the cover art a few issues ago that reminded you of the Danzig demon art. And I don't think it came up on the show. I think it came up after that. I had a reader point out to me that Danzig, in fact, ripped off Michael Golden's cover art from a different comic book, a Crystar, the Crystal Warrior comic book. And that was where he got his demon iconography from. So that was well noted by you that there was that Danzig connection. But uh, man, yeah, no, this is a gorgeous cover. Like the flames look so cool. Fashima looks so much more terrifying and less goofy than she does on the interior art. And really all of the other defenders too just look great. Yeah, if I was making a Ghost Rider themed heavy metal band, I would have wanted this as a record cover or something like it. Oh, totally. Well, there is a bunch more to cover, but I think it'll all come up in the minutia. Are you okay if we move into the minutia, Corey? Yep. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what do you feel like starting off with? Uh, we already talked about it, but let's dive in a little bit more to uh, sartorially speaking. Indeed, let's. Which fashion choices did you find most notable in this? Well, yeah, so we already talked about Asmodeus Jones's getup, but I think the one thing we left out was he compliments his low-cut, high-hipped, poofy-sleeved, one-piece green sequin bathing suit with these boots that... I don't know what you call it, like when the boots, like the top folds over to make like a bell-bottomy droopy cuff. Yeah, it's like a, like a, I call them swashbuckler boots. There's definitely a name for that. Jack Kirby did a lot of them with the really thick cuffs. But yeah, those are intense in that regard and also are very high heeled. Yeah, the cuffs balloon out like frisbees and the heels are a good four or five inch heels. It's quite a look. It really is. And we discussed very briefly the demon that he summons, Fashima. The evening gown on her is just so incongruous with the rest of her look. Like, she is clearly, it it is such a bizarre demon head that she has. And, like, huge fangs and jaws. And her arms are very, like, I don't know, like, ropey and demonic looking. And then she's wearing an evening gown. Mm-hmm. With really big, you know, like uh, non, <laughs> you can't say non-ropey, really big boobs, you know? Why are those there? I don't know. We, one would suspect that Fashima as a demon is probably non-mammalian. I can't imagine her nursing her young. It seems like an odd design. Uh, it reminds me as much of anything else as the, like, the one sexy gremlin from Gremlins 2. But it's just such an incongruous look. And even if you have that as a design for her, the the evening gown part of it is the part that I'm just like, why? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's it's a weird look. You'd think she'd at least have some weird like bondage overalls or something like gargoyle. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, traditionally, I believe the demonic garment is yes, yeah, some kind of a, a bondage bikini type thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess uh, despite her rock and roll connections, Fushima is a classy lady. Well, she definitely knows how to how to dress for a concert. <laughs> I guess. You know who else knows how to dress for a concert? Who's that? Even though he's not in the spotlight, Felix D. Palmer. He really does. Early on, like later on, he just puts on a suit, which is is disappointing when you see his early attire, which is like what I believe is probably a buckskin jacket that just doesn't even have buttons on it, I gotta believe. And like three different sets of medallions. It's quite a look. I was imagining that shirt was one of those, like, rayon silk shirts in just an orange color, like super shiny. Oh, yeah, I can see that, and I think that probably would be more in keeping with it. Either way, it is an impressively dedicated look. Like, I don't think it works with the scene that he's trying to be a part of, but it is clear that he is trying very hard. Mm -hmm. We see... The gargoyle, uh, Isaac Christians, adopting the old incognito look of a bulky green trench coat and fedora. It's not even really a fedora. It's like a combination fedora bucket hat because he's got the brim pulled way down low. It makes him look more like an old man, despite him being a hideous gargoyle. I kind of appreciated that. Yeah, I had actually noted uh, that outfit as well. And also in that same scene when they're in the hospital visiting Dolly Donahue. I wonder if that jacket Patsy's wearing is the same one she wore to the graveyard. It might be, but this time she is definitely wearing a shirt under it, which is nice. Yep, it's a good look. You know what? Let's just get into this. Who did you have as your best defender? And who did you have as your worst offender? I had a strangely difficult time with this category. I did too. Normally it's a little more cut and dried for me, but as a runner-up to best, I had Son of Satan for saving Dolly, the housekeeper, from death, and later zapping Ghost Rider into being cool, but he doesn't win because he first zaps Ghost Rider off of his motorcycle just to be a dick. Yeah, I also had him in contention for my best, and I didn't quite give it to him for the reasons that you noted, and also at the end of the issue, when everyone is pitying Asmodeus Jones before he reveals that his hated manager was his brother, everyone else is pitying him, and Damien is just like, yeah, but you know what? Fuck that guy. And I appreciated that, actually. Mm -hmm. But no, like you, I couldn't quite give it to him because of him being so bad at greeting a potential ally. So I actually went with Kyle for his uncharacteristic stoicism and self-care to a certain extent. Uh, being like, you know, you know what? I, uh, I know this concert's going to be at night. I could show up. I need some time to process things. But also he overcorrects, I think, a bit in his eschewing of not just self-pity, but of accepting pity from others. But because of its uncharacteristic nature, I appreciate that he's trying to work on himself. And yeah, I appreciated his uncharacteristic stoicism. Hmm. Yeah, those those are fair points. I wouldn't, I guess, credit him that much for it, because the way that, you know, that scene ends is him 
barely being able to get the words take care of yourselves out, and then the exposition box says, and the light seems to die in Kyle Richmond's eyes, and I'm like, oh great, here we go, back to the pity party. Okay, but it's after everybody else leaves. And I don't think you can fault him for that. Like, that he he is putting on a brave front, and then after everybody leaves, he's like, okay, now I need to deal with this. It definitely makes the point. It's when the others are gone. That's when he stops putting on the show. And, I mean, that's still not great to have that degree of self-pity then, but I appreciate that he isn't courting others with his self-deprecation. No, I hear you. And if it were anybody else, I'd be willing to give him a little bit more benefit of the doubt, but... <laughs> I, I'm scared where this is going. Tough but fair. Thank you. So who did you have as your best? I went with Steve, despite being a total fucking idiot. <laughs> That's a heck of a caveat. Not getting Wong's uh, irony. He did uncover the plot. He did get them to Motor City. <laughs> he did plan that overload the demon, save the human trick. So not bad. Yeah, I guess it worked out okay for him. Conversely, who did you have as your worst offender? Ugh, this one I don't like. So initially, I was going to give it to Patsy for laughing really pretty callously at, at this guy who's just lost his brother, even though he was a total jerk beforehand. That's true. I gotta say, I think it was just because it was so jarring. But when I read her laughing, it made me laugh. <laughs> wow, it's very empathetic. It was just so unexpected. It's like, oh, I guess that is kind of funny. Especially after the previous panel where all the defenders look so surprised. Oh, man, that panel will come up again. I had Patsy in contention as well, but I ultimately did not go with her because I know that that wasn't a good thing to do in the way that she lashed out at both Isaac and Damon Hellstrom earlier did seem a little bit inappropriate, and I think is foreshadowing of something else coming up that makes it not so much her fault. So I didn't give it to her. I strongly considered Son of Satan for, you know, just blasting Ghost Rider off a motorcycle to say hello. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just such a dick move. But other than that, he did a really good job, and I appreciated him using his healing powers. Seems weird that he doesn't do more of that. I mean... He should just spend all of his time at that hospital if he can just do that, right? Like, stop this superheroing business. Go there and heal people. Yeah, good point. But I didn't give it to him. I gave it to the gargoyle. He was my runner-up. I really don't like how he's prioritizing his remorse over his victim's needs. Like, he hurt people. And to show up at the hospital to visit her because it'll make him feel better to express remorse. He starts to say something like, I if I think if she could just know how bad I feel about what I did, then maybe she would come out of a coma. I'm like, get the fuck over yourself, dude. This is not about you. This performative remorse makes you feel better. It doesn't make anyone else feel better. This is for you, not them. It's selfish. And it annoyed me. Yeah, my notes, I called him a repentant shithead. Yeah, I think that's fair. I did like it how he wore a bucket hat, though. Yeah, not good enough, Gargi. Not good enough. Well, especially not when you couple it with the fact that he missed out on an opportunity to play a skeleton's ribs like a xylophone. Boo!
What was your pie not made out of steel this issue? What words did you like best? Much like you would like a pie if it were not made out of steel. This delightful bit of exposition from page 14. Later that same day, in Detroit, an engine roars and a man wonders. That is really nice. <laughs> I like that phrasing a lot. <laughs> I gotta say, I had a bunch to choose from in here. I was jealous at how succinctly Kyle put his ordeal when Rosenblum asks him what happened to him. He says, Would you believe me if I told you some demonic power attacked me, destroying a mystical link that had sustained my life force, and that I would have died if a sorcerer I know hadn't used his mystic amulet on me? Well, that's really succinct, Kyle. Well put. That was another reason, actually, why I voted for him as best defender. After they have beaten the human back into Ghost Rider and are providing him with some exposition, I really liked this bit where Damon Hellstrom says that he has performed an exorcism of sorts, but rather than drive your demonic self out, I simply sent it back within you and called the human to the surface. And Johnny Blaze's response is, Oh, I see. I think. No, I don't. <laughs> Very human. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm with you, Johnny. I think my favorite, though, is that exchange between Wong and Doctor Strange. It, it just captures their relationship so well, and I love the characterization specifically of Doctor Strange in this. Wong shows up with a tray of tea and says, A thousand pardons, Master, but you have been locked away for so many hours. I thought some jasmine tea might be in order. And Steve says, Huh? What is that, Wong? Tea, you say? <laughs> and yeah, especially with the read on it that I have with uh, Wong's tone, when Steve shows him the visions of the Welcome to Detroit billboard and Ghost Rider and a demon, and says, I haven't been able to figure out where the six-fingered hand could possibly strike next. Then shows him those images, and Wong says, What can they mean? <laughs> and yeah, those words juxtaposed with how pissed off at what an idiot Steve is, Wong looks. It really made the issue for me. Indeed. Well, Corey, I think it's time for us to have a battle of the band names. In last week's poll, we saw the writhing obscenities defend their title successfully against whistling past the graveyard. So, in this issue, what band name do you want to put up against the gritty dance core of the writhing obscenities? Yeah, tough one. I really do like the Asmodeus Jones name, but I, I think it's too on the nose since that was the band name in the issue. I had the same thought. So... I, I only came up with one other one that was actually from the title, and that's the Rock and Roll Conspiracy with an exclamation point at the end. Hmm. I can see that. That being like a, uh, I don't know, that sounds kind of Sha-na-na-y to me, you know? Yeah, let's go with sha na Like, like it, it just seems like the kind of band you would see playing at the riverfront, maybe. <laughs> like, Captain Fun Hat's Rock and Roll Review, you know, something like that. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I was thinking like a little more like Ramonesy, but those are only a few steps removed from each other musically. <laughs> yeah, I think Captain Fun Hat and the Rock and Roll Review and the Ramones shared a billet on at least a couple of occasions. I just mean the song structure. Oh, sure. No, yeah, song structure actually very similar. 
there's something just about having the name rock and roll in your band. Mm-hmm. It's like straight to the county fair circuit for you, folks. Yeah. Like, yeah, we got together and play a few tunes uh, during the summer. Pretty good. We've played a number of weddings, and uh, then we go back to our jobs as accountants. The two that I found were the Clarion Power Chords. <laughs> Honestly, I like the name the Power Chords better, but I feel like that has to be a band name already. And the other one that I found I think I like a little bit better, which is the Decadent Trappings. Hmm. I feel like that sounds like a, like, 60s psychedelic garage rock band, you know? Mm, or 70s kind of glam. Ooh, yeah, I can see that, too. I think either way they would have brightly colored velvet jackets. I think the main difference would be whether they had fancy lacy shirts under those jackets or no shirts under those jackets. So I think that's probably my favorite is the decadent trappings. Uh, how are you leaning? Yeah, let's go with that. I, th- I think that's that's better than... a. Uh than a fairgrounds <laughs> fodder. I mean, that's not entirely fair because the conspiracy part I don't think really fits with that band name. So what what kind of music had you thought they were going to be? Oh, I was thinking that they were like a straight ahead kind of rock and roll band and really figured out the conspiracy angle. So that would be ironic, the conspiracy angle, because <laughs> they are so straightforward. Yeah, I guess so. Oh, I do like irony. But I think I'm still going to give the nod to the Deccan and Trappings. I just, I feel like they're in the same genre as like the Electric Prunes and like the Strawberry Alarm Clock. I, I can see the Deccan and Trappings playing with those guys, you know? I, I think they're a pretty good band. All right, let's go with it. Okay, I'll put up that Twitter poll. There were some fun ones to choose from in this category. What was your favorite sound effect? Um, as a runner-up, and I know technically it probably doesn't count, but it was really drawn like one on page 27. Too much! <laughs> I like that, just that the idea when there is that much excess going on, <laughs> it just makes the noise. Too much! Yep. I could use that kind of an alarm happening from time to time. <laughs> like you open the sixth beer and instead of the noise, it goes too much. You're like, well, this clam dip's not going to be good tomorrow. Too much. <laughs> yep. I had a tough time choosing between the different noises that shot out of Asmodeus Jones's forehead. But I think I got to go with the first one, which is just Fazat! Which I saw as a contraction of, what the fuck is that? Oh man, I, I had a different one from his head that I thought was even better on page 26, and it's Jack. I like that that one is hyphenated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had a couple of other fun noises shoot out of his forehead. He had a Fazakt and a Wazikt. Yep. All good forehead noises. Indeed. What was your favorite panel? Boy, the art in this was fun. I really liked on page 11, the magical healing bubbles from Damon when he heals Dolly in the hospital. I enjoyed those as well. Yeah, kind of a, I don't know, what do you call that? Mid-century modern aesthetic <laughs> to the magic? Totally. Yeah, there there is a very like, I don't know, like almost uh, like 60s retro futurist look. 
to the bubbles emanating out of the like sun rays that mm. are shooting into Dolly. Okay. It's, it's a very fun image. I, I also really like the one that we talked about earlier with, um, I called it, I think, Surprise Defenders. I like that too. I think that one might be my favorite uh, on the last page. Mm-hmm. I wonder honestly if maybe Asmodeus Jones has had a costume malfunction. <laughs> just from the specific looks on the defenders' faces. Because it's like, this dead man was my brother. And Steve looks not just shocked, but shocked and a little disgusted. Mm-hmm. And everyone else is just like, uh, oh my god, what? And that would maybe jibe with Patsy's maniacal laughter there. Mm. And also the look on Damon's face where he's still looking at that guy like, fuck you. <laughs> Put that thing away, Asmodeus. A man is dead. <laughs> this is no time for junk. Yeah, that one was definitely in the in the running for my top panel. The one that gives it a run for its money is the opening concert scene with that excited lighting guy waving at the audience and the <laughs> Jawas with the magically levitating guitars and the whole deal. I liked that one a lot. The one that gives it a run for... It's Money for Me is on page seven, and it's the close-up of Isaac in his disguise. Uh, You see that his wings under the trench coat make a hump in the trench coat that goes well up over his head. And he just looks so goofy in that outfit. I call the panel, yup, totally incognito. I love a good trench coat and fedora, but I think I have to give the slight edge to... uh, Everybody being varying degrees of surprised, shocked, horrified, disgusted, and amused by Asmodeus Jones's junk. I can't read Damon's face if he's, like, jealous. I think if it was something to be jealous about, Patsy wouldn't be laughing. (laughs) Well, it's probably very cold in that stadium with all the lights off. Well, Corey, it's time for us to ask ourselves the age-old question. Behold or be gone? In this issue, we saw that Ghost Rider's personality is now totally switched when he transforms with that of Johnny Blaze. They're completely separate characters. Also, Ghost Rider was played in two different movies by Nicolas Cage. The question we're going to ask ourselves today, which we need to decide whether this concept should be beheld or banished from ever appearing anywhere again, is if you could switch Nicolas Cage with any Defender in this book, is that something you want to behold or do you want that to be gone? Oh boy. In this scenario, it would be like if you switch him with Doctor Strange, it's not just that Doctor Strange is now drawn to look like Nicolas Cage. It would be Nicolas Cage, the Sorcerer Supreme. And so he would have that character's abilities, but still Nicolas Cage's backstory and personality. Gosh, that's a really tough one because, like, on one hand, I can see that being pretty hilarious. But on the other hand, I only know of him the public stuff, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've seen that video of him freaking out, all edited together. 
Spike, which is him acting, and I know his certainly methods are are a little out there, eating cockroaches and whatnot, or chugging jelly beans, as you mentioned. Okay, so let's tweak it a little bit so that the character would be replaced with your conception of Nicolas Cage. Not necessarily the real Nicolas Cage. Okay, second question. Does it stay that way for the rest of these comics that we have to read together? Yes. So about like uh, around 50 more comics we would have of one character replaced with Nicolas Cage. Okay. Yeah, I'm in, but I'm going to choose Gargoyle since I know the other folks. I want to see how they develop. Gargoyle, I don't really give a shit about, and I think he's a jerk, but I think Nicolas Cage as Gargoyle would be a lot of fun. So if I get to choose him, I'm in. You can, and okay. I I am torn. Gosh, I mean, Nicolas Cage as Son of Satan. (laughs) I, I like that idea a lot. I might go with that. I'm also a little bit tempted to have uh, Dr. Strange's manservant, Nicolas Cage. <laughs> because I just don't see Nicolas Cage putting up with Steve's shit in the same way. And I love Wong, but he doesn't really appear all that much. And so I feel like as Nicolas Cage, he would make his presence known a lot more and would be uh, less willing to put up with Steve's shit. And we would see a very different dynamic. But it means no more Wong, and I like Wong, so... We'd also have to write what what Nicolas Cage is up to. Oh, man. I, I don't have enough imagination to figure out what <laughs> Nicolas Cage is up to. So, ah, gosh. I think I am also giving it a behold, but it would be Nicolas Cage, son of Satan. Mm. And I think that would work because you do have Nicolas Cage, I'm sorry, son of Satan. <laughs> it's already happening. I mean, they both struggle to control their rage, I feel like. And the demonic freakouts that Son of Satan has, if Nicolas Cage was having them, it would make so much more sense. Mm. And they'd be a lot more fun, I think. Mm -hmm. And maybe we would see the Son of Satan chugging a giant novelty martini glass full of jelly beans. I like it. I think I'm going to behold, and I'm going with Son of Satan. Huh? Two beholds. Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? Hmm. Yeah, I think Hulk is going to take a page from the Art of War in this segment, which he learned from both Steve and Val across page 26 and page 27, which is that you save your attack to just the right moment when your enemy is at their most dazed and confused. Hmm. Is that where that movie got its name? Get him good and high. (laughs) (laughs) and then attack nice i think that's a valuable rule that we can all learn from the hulk and uh sun tzu Mm -hmm. and uh oh fuck i'm forgetting his name what's that about me director guy richard linkletter yeah yeah and richard linkletter also don't be a slacker before sunrise oh or you'll um What's another Richard Linklater movie? <laughs> that animated one. <laughs> a Waking Life. That movie scared the shit out of me. That's a weird fucking movie, man. Yeah. That angry dude in the jail cell? Ooh. Uh, just the whole concept of waking up but still being in a dream. Terrifying. Yep. No thanks. Be gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that is a valuable rule from the Hulk and company. 
I had him learning a rule that was inspired by a piece of captioning in this comic book. When we are first introduced to Johnny Blaze in this issue, he is backstage at the Asmodeus Jones concert, and the captions describe him as itinerant motorcyclist Johnny Blaze. First of all, both me and the Hulk are amused by the idea of him being described as itinerant motorcyclist. Now, yes, he used to be a professional motorcyclist, but he isn't anymore. He's now working as a roadie. The motorcycle is his mode of transportation. But I think it's funny to be introduced to a character and basically be told, like, meet motorcycle haver Johnny Blaze. (laughs) And so the Hulk saw that, and he wanted everyone to learn the lesson that he learned from Ian McKay and Fugazi. You are not what you own. Mm. And that is the Hulk's rule. It's a good rule. You are not what you own. I was listening to that song just the other day. That's a good song. Mm-hmm. One more question. We're still asking it about Wong and not Nicolas Cage, but I will allow you to make an audible on that if you want. Nope. In the year of our Lord, 1981, and the month of our Lord, June, what Wong doings is Wong doing? So, in June of 1981... Both Steve and Wong, as they often do, needed some some time away and decided to go get some sunshine and, and visit some friends in California. And one evening over dinner with a, a couple that they were friends with who were both uh, scientists by profession, Steve, kind of half listening to the conversation, thought that they were discussing difficulties with conception or making what he thought was making babies, you know, doing perhaps part to the fact that he was on his fifth Brandy Alexander and under the influence <laughs> of a great deal of some Humboldt incense, which was far stronger than the Jamaican variety that he was accustomed to. Oh, dear. You know, didn't realize that they were talking about the conceiving of a plan to deal with the uh, agricultural impacts of uh, fruit fly infestation in California uh, agriculture. Waves his hand grandly and slurs, I'll help you with the baby. <laughs> Oh, no! Why the eye of Agamotto be fruit flies and multiply and other stuff. And Wong, you know, caught the error and is like, oh, shit. And, you know, kind of tries to sub-vocalize a, a counterspell, which undid some of the damage, but with a strange side effect. So mm. the result of Steve's mistake was that on June 14th, the California medfly crisis came into full full swing which happened when millions of fruit flies that were supposed to be sterile were released into the environment to bring the population down. Turned out they weren't sterile, so it had the opposite effect, and the fruit flies went nuts and had a devastating effect on uh, the crops throughout the whole state of California. So that was a bummer. But a few days later, on June 19th, thanks to Wong's counterspell in Nelsprit, South Africa... The largest and heaviest orange known, weighing in at 2.5 kilograms, was exhibited. (laughs) So, there's that. I think those totally even each other out, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was one thing that Wong was up to in June of 1981. But it wasn't his only adventure during that month. See, during the previous year, Wong and Steve had helped out a friend of theirs. Steven Spielberg, do some special effects for his and George Lucas's movie, 
Raiders of the Lost Ark. All those uh, magic-y bits flying around when the Nazis had their faces melt, that was something that uh, a little trick that Wong worked out. And because they were so grateful, Wong and Steve were given three tickets to the premiere of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And they were very, very excited, and they were trying to figure out who it was that they were going to bring. And uh, they drew straws, and maybe he uh, did a little bit of extra sleight of hand, but Steve ended up winning. And he was like, I know just who I would like to invite. You know how much I like that song, Hotel California, Wong. <laughs> well, I want you to invite my good friend, Steely Dan, because I like how he sang that song. Oh, no. And Wong's like, oh, God, you know what? Normally I would correct that. That's, that's the Eagles. That's not Steely Dan. Steely Dan isn't a guy. How do I want to triage this situation? You know what? Um, I'm going to let the Eagles thing slide. Steve, Steely Dan is not one guy. It, it, it's two guys. And Steve's like, oh, well, Wong, we only have one ticket. So I just want you to invite Steely Dan, not Steely Dan's. <laughs> so Wong was just like, okay, look, fine. Uh, Walter Beckett or Donald Fagan? And Steve, of course, half hearing this thing, is like, well, I don't want you to invite Fagan. He'd, he'd likely pick a pocket or two. That's what I know about Fagan. No, you invite this Walter Beckett fellow if, if, if my good friend Steely Dan is not available. And so uh, Wong called Walter Beckett, and uh, he got to go to the premiere of Raiders of the Lost Ark with him. Donald Fagan did not. That led to some tension between the two. I, Donald Fagan, understandably, upset to be left out of this because he had been confused yet again with Dickensian, horrific stereotype Fagan. And uh, that is why, on June 21st, Steely Dan broke up. God damn it, Steve. Eh, either way. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining us. We will be back next week with another new Teen Titans story. Gotta believe it'll be better than the last one. Um, <laughs> we are back to the usual creative team, I believe, so hopefully that'll clear some things up. And then we'll be back in two weeks for another Defenders comic where we'll see the return of Devil Slayer. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by reaching us at our P.O. Box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can also be reached via electronic mail at ttwasteland at gmail.com. If you can't find us in those places, uh, you can try poking around on the socials media. Just uh, attend one of these... Tupperware parties that are very popular these days, and uh, for just a very small fraction of your soul, you can gain access to all of my thoughts on how many hot dogs Shaft can eat. No, wait, you know what? I'll just tell you. Save your soul. Uh, seven. Seven is how many hot dogs Shaft ate that one time. I might not be talking about that anymore by next week on social media, but <laughs> frankly, I wouldn't bet against me. Anyway, yeah, just uh, poke around on social media. I'm, I'm up there sometimes saying a thing. And hey, if you can't find me there, there's one more place you can look. Deep inside your heart. Me and Corey will be there. We've been there for quite some time. We like it there. 
You know what I like about living in people's hearts? Hmm. Not as much pollen. Mm-hmm. No sneezing. It's been affecting me lately, and uh, it's really nice to just get away and stay inside someone's heart and uh, just really clean out my sinuses. So uh, thanks for that, that nice respite, folks. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can do so by checking us out on Patreon.com. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W, because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. There are also a whole bunch of bonus videos of classic comics that are up there. I recently have done a couple of videos about the debut of the character Nightmaster in the showcase comics of the late 60s. I've really been enjoying those. But there's a ton of stuff up there, and it is all available exclusively to our donors. If you would like to support the show in a non-monetary manner, you know what? Despite my earlier advice, I do not recommend you selling your soul to the devil. There is no call for that. Or to a six-fingered hand group of demons. You hang on to that soul. It's yours. You keep it. That is the tighten up the defense guarantee. <laughs> but there are other ways that you can support us in a non-financial manner. Corey, what are some of those ways? You can tell a friend or really anybody, that maybe they should uh, give it a listen. Yeah, you could get one of those uh, loudspeakers and hook it up to the outside of your car and just uh, just play it at people. I think they would love that, probably. Just getting contextual phrases about comic books and Doctor Strange impressions. Uh, I think that would be a really great way for us to increase our brand and your popularity. But if you don't want to do that, I think another thing that you could do is to leave us a review in a place where a review can be left. Uh, th these are places like uh, Apple Podcasts, Podomatic, uh, Pod Bay, I think is one. Uh, open the Pod Bay doors, Hal, and dump a review in there. And then and if they say, I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that, you'd be like, hey, I'm not Dave, and... Uh, just just do it, okay, Robot? You work for me. I'm in the driver's seat. Five stars. <laughs> Don't let that robot kill you in space. That's the tighten up the defense guarantee. If you listen to our show, I guarantee you will not be killed in space by a robot. Or your money back. You won't get an offer like that from 99% Invisible. I hear Roman Mars wants robots to murder you in space. Five stars. Five stars. Yeah. So, thanks for listening, people. We'll talk to you next week. And until then... Too much. Bye. 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 <laughs>